The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me. We're going to be in Colossians once again, chapter 2 this evening. And the title of my message for you is Complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. And before we get to that, though, I wanted to just um, bring you in on some things that are happening, um, keep you abreast of those things, because that'll play into some conversations that we'll be having in the near future. And uh, so anyways, this, this past Thursday, uh, I was able to go up to Huntington Beach, and there was a group of pastors that had the opportunity to meet with the Consul General of Israel. And so this guy is an ambassador for Israel. There's a picture of me with him, and, and um, that's Greg Denham on, what would that be, my left? So your left there. He's a pastor in San Marcos of a sister church. And this, this general consul is an incredible guy. He was actually at the table with the foreign minister of Israel, and he was the guy that helped broker the peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which of course was the first domino to fall, and uh, we call it the Abraham Accords. And so we had an opportunity to sit down with him and talk about that and where he sees things going from there. And, and we had slated to have him out earlier this month to do an interview here at the church, but with everything going on, we decided to postpone that. But I just wanted to bring you into that because this guy is at the cutting edge of what is happening in Israel. We need to pray for him. We need to pray for his family, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And also, I wanted to bring him here. So he's going to come. Uh, he's, he's excited to come, and he's going to sit down. And we're going to talk about what's happening in the world, what's God doing with Israel. And so, um, yeah, just an incredible opportunity that I've been grafted into because of the ministry of my father. And just so thankful for that. Also, today, we're going to be celebrating communion, which is always a powerful time. And God has been doing some incredible things. It was a month ago that I was able to preach the first sermon of the new year. And we talked about God doing a new thing. Didn't know at the time what he was doing, but it turned out to be prophetic. And, and during that um, communion service, I felt led of the Lord during one of the services to you know, step out in faith. And I just had an impression on my heart that God was healing someone of migraine headaches that they had been experiencing for many years. And, and so um, didn't think much of it. I just stepped out in faith. And I said that because I felt like the Lord was leading me to do so. And I didn't meet anyone afterwards um, that, that told me that was me. But then I got an email. And uh, the email said, hey, my missionary friend in Brazil just texted me that she was healed of chronic migraine headaches last Sunday morning when I stood in her place after communion. Pastor Daniel called out that someone was getting healed of chronic severe headaches, and I received it for her. I realized that Jesus paid for her healing, and it is our legal right as believers to access what he did for us on the cross. I shifted my focus from my own doubts and flaws and insecurities and trusted Jesus to heal her. Yay, God, thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Pastor Daniel, for stepping out in faith to call out her healing. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You know, we worship and we serve and we believe in 
a God of miracles, and this is a house of miracles, amen? And so God is continuing to heal, he's continuing to save, he's continuing to transform lives, and we're gonna give him the opportunity to do that again at the end of our service this evening. But before we get to that, we get to open the word, and so here we are in Colossians chapter two. If you were with us last week, we got to have this window into the Apostle Paul's heart. He gave us a window into his own story, and he gave us a window into the ministry that God had given to him to lead and oversee. And today, what we're going to get to do is we get the opportunity to eavesdrop on Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. So this is Paul praying here in the first part of chapter two for the Colossian believers. Now, it's always a treat when you get to look at and study the prayers of the Bible because these are the kinds of prayers that God tends to answer. We all, we want, we all wanna improve our prayer lives. And did you know that there are over 650 recorded prayers in the Bible? That's a lot of territory, a lot of ground for us to cover that if you want to get better at praying, then my encouragement to you would be to start by looking at those prayers and learning from them. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, and, and so the first heading, the first section that we're going to look at in verses one through five, I've titled Learning to Pray with Power. So let's go ahead and begin reading that together. Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they might have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they might know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. All right, so this is Paul praying for these believers, and he begins by saying that he was contending hard for them. Now, these were believers that Paul had never met personally. Yet I'm struck by the fact that his heart was burdened for them and he's contending for them on their behalf. Now the word here, translated contend, it comes from the Greek word agon. Same word we derive our words agonize and agony from. And it was used in that culture and in that context to describe the different competitions that the Greeks would have at their Olympic games. You know, Paul... He must have been a sports fan because he was always drawing analogies and borrowing pictures and using metaphors that, that compared to the sports world. We got any sports fans in the house and I'm a big sports fan. I love all of our San Diego teams and I'm always pulling for the Padres. I, I have semi given up on the Chargers, but you know, I do like Justin Herbert, I gotta admit. And, and uh, there's just something about that guy, but anyways, I, I grew up playing a lot of sports and anything with any kind of competitive element to it, whether you're trying to throw something, throw a rock at a big rock or whatever it is, stick and ball sports. I was playing sports with my kids today. I just, I love sports. And so maybe that's why I'm such a fan of Paul's. 
He must have been a sports fan because he was always doing that kind of stuff. And, 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 and he was constantly drawing these parallels. And, and for me, too, it's, it's just incredible to see these athletes at the top of their game competing at the highest levels to win the championship or the trophy or the prize or even the gold medal. And I'm reminded that when I was a little kid, my dad, he used to, you know, he would tell us these stories. And one of the things he said to my sister and I a lot was he'd say, you know, I'm not trying to brag, he would say, but if I had been bigger, faster, and stronger, I, I think I probably could have gone pro. And my sister and I would look at him like, are you kidding? So we would tell all of our friends, you know, my dad, he almost went pro. He was pretty incredible. You should meet him. You'd like him, you know, <laughs> of course. It was years later that I realized that, you know, if anybody were bigger, faster, stronger, they too could have gone pro. So now I tell my kids, you know, guys, if I'd been bigger and faster, it's just, it is what it is. So Paul, he saw himself like one of those professional athletes, only he understood that he was contending for something far more significant than a medal or a trophy or a prize. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9.25, and I would love it if we could read this verse together out loud. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So Paul says, these athletes, you look at them, and they're, they're counting their calories, and their, their workouts are all programmed, and, and everything about their life is, is all geared towards this one goal of winning the prize or contending for the medal. And Paul says, I realize that as believers, we're contending for something that is so much more significant. It's a crown that will last forever. So how did Paul contend for these believers? What did that look like for him? And the answer is, he did that through this thing we call prayer. Now, prayer is a great big topic, but when you strip it down to its irreducible minimum, you know what prayer is? It's just talking to God. The word pray simply means to ask. And so there are many different forms of prayer, kinds of prayer that you see in the Bible. One kind is petition. And uh, this means asking God for things. So when you come to God and you say, God, I would like this, or God, I need you to do that, or God, I would love for you to move here, that's petition, also known as supplication. Another form of prayer would be confession, where we ask God to give us forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 would be an example of this. Thanksgiving is another important form or type of prayer, telling God, thank you. The Bible tells us to rejoice always and to give thanks in all things. And then praise. Praise is another form or type of prayer, just telling God, I love you. What a beautiful kind of prayer this is. And if you need words to, to give expression to your heart's cry of I love you, I would encourage you to just comb through the Psalms and find Psalms of adoration, Psalms of praise. And then the final form of prayer in these kind of buckets that we're dumping different kinds of prayer into would be intercession. Now, this is the, the type of prayer that, that Paul prays here. And this is the category that his prayer falls under. It's intercession. It's praying for others. And this is contending prayer. Sometimes it's agonizing prayer. It's spiritual warfare. 
And this form of prayer is very powerful. It's where you enter the spiritual arena and begin to duke it out with the devil. It's where you contend for other people, not just yourself. And the thing that makes this form of prayer so powerful is by it and through it, we get to engage the God of heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth, on behalf of those we love and care for. And it's so cool to know that we can have an impact all around the globe. We can have an impact in people's lives who are distanced from us by time and, and miles. And we can go before the Lord in prayer. And we can go battle for them in their place on their behalf. No wonder Satan's chief concern is to keep us from praying. I, I found this quote about prayer and about Satan's desire to keep us from it. And I want to read it to you. It's from a guy named Samuel Chadwick. He said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Somebody say amen to that. So Lord, we just pray that you would send shockwaves into the spiritual atmosphere right now as we just lift up this prayer. We pray that you would move powerfully in this meeting tonight, move powerfully in our hearts, move on behalf of those we love, those who are not here, those who are far from you. We pray that you would draw them to yourself even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Satan trembles when even the weakest saint falls to their knees in prayer. And I just want to shamelessly plug our Tuesday morning prayer gathering. There is a small group of about 20 of us who gather in our bookstore, which as you leave here is just two rights. You know, your first right as you exit and then the first right. And we gather from 7 to 8 for a time of praise and prayer. And don't you know that those are some of the most impactful most significant moments that we spend together as a church. I believe that the things that happen in that little room with that little gathering are having an impact worldwide. And I would love for you to join us. If you can make it even just for a portion of it, there are people who come and just duck their head in for 10, 15 minutes, whatever you can do. And all we do is we worship and we pray. And then we watch as God works miracles in our lives. So. What did Paul pray for? He prays for two things in these first five verses. The first thing he prays for is that the believers in Colossae would be encouraged in heart. Now, the definition of the word encouragement is to give someone support or confidence or hope. Is there anyone in here who could use some support? Just raise your hand. Anybody that needs a little confidence, an infusion of confidence? Please, somebody else. Or at least nod your head with me. Thank you. Thank you. Or who could use a little bit of hope? We need encouragers in our lives. I was thinking about it. And I was thinking along these lines. Encouragement isn't one of those things that you can overdose on. You know, someone tries to encourage you or starts to encourage you and you're just like, sorry, my encouragement tank is already full. I just can't handle anymore. You know, you're never going to overdose on encouragement. I, I am so thankful for the people in my life that are encourages, encouragers, sorry. You know, those Barnabas type people, every time they find you, they just bring a word of encouragement. They lift you up. I, I look for these kinds of people. I consciously try to surround myself with them. 
And then there are those other people that land in another category. These are the the discouragers. And no matter what you're doing or what you're trying or what you're stepping out in faith in, they, they're like they're like a wet blanket, you know, to just discourage you. They're like rain clouds. I try to avoid such people at all costs. You know, the devil is a discourager, isn't he? We all have disappointments in life. Disappointments are unavoidable. But the, the devil tries to get us to dwell on those disappointments because then discouragement can reach its hooks into our heart and take root. And the devil knows that when we're discouraged, that's when we begin to lack the motivation to keep going. That's why he spends so much of his time not only trying to keep us from praying, but he tries to discourage us in our faith journey. There's this old fable a well-known story about how one day the, the devil decided to throw a garage sale. And so he took some of his old, worn, used tools and he laid them out on tables and demons started to come by and they would pick up the tools and, and check the prices. And so they saw anger for $100. Resentment was $400. This tool with an odd shape called hatred cost $600, et cetera, et cetera. One day devil was, or demon was kind of rummaging around and he came by and he noticed a well-worn tool on a table in the corner without a price tag on it. And he inquired the devil about its cost. And the devil said, oh, that's not for sale. It's the most useful tool I own. Well, this, of course, piqued the demon's interest. He said, how much? I'll give you twice whatever you think it's worth. He really wanted it. The devil said, no, I told you it's not for sale. Dejected, the devil turn, or the demon turned to leave, but before he went, he said, well, if you won't sell it to me, will you at least tell me what it is? At this point, a slow and wicked grin crept onto the devil's face as he said, sure. I call it discouragement. When I can't bring down my victims with the rest of my tools, I use discouragement. With that tool alone, I can accomplish my every task. You see, the devil knows that a discouraged Christian is a sidelined Christian. They've removed themselves from the battle, so to speak. He doesn't have to bother with them because they've removed themselves. So that's why Paul prays that the believers in Colossae would be encouraged in their hearts. So we can encourage one another. We can ask the Lord to encourage us. And we also have an obligation, a duty from Scripture to, to be encouraged to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says it like this. Encourage one another. Build one another up. This is the exhortation of the Lord. And maybe you would say, well, pff, I don't have any encouragers in my life. And you need to look for some. But you know what else you can do? You can encourage yourself in the Lord. David did this. There's this episode in his life where really a low point for King David in his reign as king. And there was this point at which everyone turned on him. They were all mad at him. And they mostly wanted to kill him. And at that point, the scriptures tell us that David began to encourage himself in the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. And there are those times when you need to learn the discipline of encouraging yourself in the Lord. And hopefully that's happening tonight. I hope you leave here encouraged in your walk with the Lord, that your heart, that little bar of encouragement would just fill up tonight. That's, that's always the goal when we gather. But the second thing that Paul prayed for these Colossian believers is that they would be united in love. Unity is so 
powerful. It's, it's a beautiful thing when you see it among the body of Christ. But it's also a difficult thing to achieve. And maybe even as difficult as it is to achieve, it's even harder to maintain, right? Like getting a group of Christians to get along has been described a bit akin to trying to get a group of porcupines to cuddle together. Every time they try to get close, they end up poking one another. You know what I'm talking about. Well, the devil loves to divide God's people, right? He loves to discourage and he loves to divide. One of the first things he did was divide the angels in heaven. That was followed by driving a wedge between Adam and Eve and their relationship with God. And he's been on that same track ever since. And you look at our own country. He's doing a pretty good job of it, isn't he? I mean, we call ourselves the United States of America. Maybe that's not such a fitting title for us anymore. Recently, we feel more like the divided states of America. We're divided over just about everything from race to politics to the environment. You see people divided over mask or no mask, vax or no vax, Democrat, Republican, paper or plastic, boxers or briefs. We divide over just about everything. It's crazy. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. I just, I don't know where that came from. I talk a lot and sometimes things just come out. We can, We'll edit for tomorrow, okay? <laughs> Chet says it's true. That's why the church needs to contend for unity, amen? amen? And where do we find that unity? We find it in the love that we share for God. Our mission statement and vision statement as a church is love God, love people. It really comes from the great commandment which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the great uh, commission, or the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? So Jesus prayed for unity, and, and this is in, in our notes this evening, so I'd love it if we can read this together. Jesus said, I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through them. Their words, sorry so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Wow, powerful. This is Jesus' heart for the church. It's echoed by the Apostle Paul, and it's what God wants for each and every one of us. Because when the world that is characterized by division and strife looks at a church that is made up of people from every walk and social strata, every economic background, every race, and they, they see us come together under the banner of Christ's love for us, and we worship the same Jesus, we're baptized in the same baptism, baptism. We all have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us. We read from the same book. We come under the authority of the same heavenly Father, and we call him Abba together, and we worship Jesus together. When the world sees that, they stop, and they stare, and they say, that is supernatural, because that kind of unity doesn't happen naturally. It preaches. So Paul says, I want you to walk in this unity. He prays for that. What a beautiful thing to pray for. 
because the, the devil wants to discourage, so we need to pray that we would be encouraged. He wants to divide, so we pray for unity and love. And then he goes on in verse 6, and Paul says this, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And I've given the heading to this section, continuing on in Jesus. See, the Colossian believers had started off so well, but Paul wanted to see them continue on in their faith. So important, such a wonderful reminder and encouragement to us all to keep on keeping on. How many people do you know who used to walk with the Lord but are no longer walking with Jesus? What happened? I mean, we could point to any number of different you know, reasons why, but somewhere along the line, they, they stopped. You know, Jesus said that in the last days, because iniquity will abound, that the love of many would grow cold. And I, I believe that we're living in those days. And so a verse like this is there to remind us that it's not just how well we start, it's how well we finish. That's the goal, that we would finish strong. That's what really matters. King Solomon put it like this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8. He said, the end of a matter is greater than its beginning. It's wonderful to have you know, the parade and the start, and you cut the ribbon and all of that, but it's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk after that. I was reading about this special relay race that they used to have in ancient Greece. It was, a, it was a race where the runners held a torch in their hand and they passed it from one runner till the next until the whole team had crossed the finish line. Only the interesting thing about this race was it wasn't just the, the team that finished first that won the prize, but it was the team that finished with their torch still lit. And that's what I want. That's what I want for us. I don't want us to whimper out. I don't want us to fizzle. I don't want us to fade. I want to finish strong. I want to, I want to run like my dad ran. He ran a good race, and he finished strong with the fire still blazing in his heart. Amen. So how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're continuing on? And the, the answer lies in the first part of the verse where Paul points to the answer when he says, do this just as you received the Lord. So if you want to finish strong, then you've got to continue to do what you first did when you received the Lord. So the question is, how did you receive the Lord? How do you receive the Lord? Well, three things. First, you must receive the Lord with the faith of a child. Mark chapter 10, verse 15 puts it like this. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So what does that mean, to enter the kingdom? You've got to receive the kingdom like a child. Well, it doesn't mean that we're childish. We don't want to remain childish. But at the same time, it means we can't lose our sense of childlike wonder. Amen? Children just have this incredible capacity for awe and amazement and wonder. They have no trouble believing in God or in the stories of creation or in the story of the flood or, or any other, the story of the resurrection. And so they just, their, their natural bent and proclivity is to trust, you know? And my kids, I just think of when I'm in the pool and, and when they were littler, they would just launch off the edge and leap into my arms. It's just the trust that they have. And God says, stay that way. Don't move on from that place of childlike 
trust. Secondly, you must receive him by grace through faith. We see this in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, which says it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So grace is the key to not just receiving Jesus, but grace is the key to growing in Jesus. And one of the mistakes that mature Christians fall into is they think that grace is the starting point, but then it's through my effort and my good works that I attain my my standing before God. And that's just not how it works. Grace isn't the starting point. It's the only point in the Christian walk, okay? So it's how we make all forward progress in our faith. So you must receive him by grace. And thirdly, you must receive Jesus as Lord. And we see this right here in verse six, where he says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Here's what that means. It means he still gets to call the shots. God is not your (laughs) co-pilot. He's not your divine bellboy that you ring for him every time you want something. He's not that magic genie in the bottle who's just there to answer your prayer request. No, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And if he's Lord, that means you're his servant and you come under his authority and you do what he says. And that's how the relationship works. And if you do those things, if you continue to follow Jesus like a child, trusting in him, if you continue to just rely on his grace, which is sufficient to meet all of your needs, And if you will continue to come under his authority as the the Lord in your life, then you too will be like Paul. You'll be like my dad. You'll finish strong. He goes on in verse 7. He says, you'll be rooted and built up in him and strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Man, that just sounds like a series of pictures and metaphors that I want to typify or characterize my life. Rooted like a tree. Not like uh, a tumbleweed that gets uprooted. I, I was driving down the road yesterday with all that wind. That was crazy, wasn't it? This tumbleweed was just coming at me. There's plants that have no root systems. But instead, think of like a sequoia. I was in uh, Yosemite not too long ago and just standing in front of these massive trees that, that weigh as much as an aircraft carrier. And I'm, I'm picturing that when I think of this rooted tree firmly established building. Maybe you've, not, not America, but maybe you've been to some place, you know, like, like Europe where they have buildings that date back thousands of years. That's, that's a building with a sure, strong foundation. These are the pictures that Paul paints of the believer who's continuing on. And he says that believer will overflow with thankfulness for the Lord. You can always tell a, a Christian who's got it right because there will, they will just exude joy. I want to be one of those people that just has so much joy that it's like, ah, that guy's got Jesus. I can just tell. And that's what Paul points to. And then we'll, we'll wrap up with this in verses 8 through 10 where he says, well, and, and the heading of this section is complete in Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, he was addressing a specific group of heretics who were infiltrating the early church. There were false religions and false teachers that kind of tried to make their way into the church back then, just like there are today. And so we need to watch out for these 
individuals and these groups and these heresies. Now, this, this particular heresy was one that was called Gnosticism. The word gnosis in the Greek means knowledge. And so these Gnostics claimed to have a special revelation about who Jesus was. They had special knowledge about heaven. And, and this knowledge could only be gained through participating in their secret rites and you know, getting their secret handshakes and, and participating in their rituals and ceremonies. Furthermore, they taught that while well, Jesus was a great starting point in order to truly find your way into maturity and progress in spiritual matters, matters you had to move beyond him and you had to join their club, so to speak. And Paul's response to them, we find in verses 9 and 10, where he says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. So we don't need to get lost in all of these isms and schisms and thoughts and theories and philosophies of men. No, no, no. We're just going to stick to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, in verse 9, Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Jesus is fully God. And by the way, verse 9 is one of the strongest statements in support of Jesus' deity that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And there are those people, and this is important to know, because there are those people who will come to you and say, ah, you know, Jesus was great. I have no problem with Jesus. He was a wonderful moral teacher, or he was, you know, this great philosopher. He was a miracle worker. He was a prophet. But they stop short of calling him God. Or they might even give him that he was a God, or he was the prophet, but they won't say that he was God. But what you need to understand is that Jesus claimed to be God. He wasn't just 50% man or 50% God or half and half. He was, he was fully God and fully man. He claimed to be God. He said he was God. He received worship as God. Furthermore, he did the works of God. He possessed the attributes of God. He was all-knowing. He was all-powerful. He had the attributes of God. And then he proved unequivocally that he was God when he said, I'll prove that I'm God, kill me, put me on a cross, bury me in a tomb, and three days later, I'll rise from the dead. How about that? And that's what Jesus did. And C.S. Lewis, who is a legend and just a wonderful, brilliant Christian mind, he put it so much more eloquently than I ever could. So I just want to read this excerpt to you. It's from Mere Christianity, which is a wonderful book that I would recommend. He said, I'm, I'm trying to, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And I quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a, a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. <laughs> 
So he's either a, a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Paul would say all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him in bodily form, and I am inclined to agree with him. And then he makes this radical statement, and you are complete in him. We've all been brought into his fullness. So all the fullness dwelt in him, and in him you have been brought into that same fullness. This is a beautiful thought. Now, the same Greek word gets used in both of those statements. In some, in some translations, it will render as fullness, and in others, it will read that you are complete in him. But it's the same thing either way. You are completely saved. Amen? You are completely forgiven. You have been completely set free. You have complete victory in Jesus tonight. And by the way, you are perfectly and fully and completely equipped with everything you need to accomplish everything that Jesus put you on this earth to do. You see, the word translated fullness there, it was often used in Paul's day to describe a ship that had been fully outfitted and equipped with all of the supplies and all of the provisions and all of the sailors that were required for its journey. And so Paul is telling us that in Christ, we're perfectly equipped with all that we need to fulfill our calling. So I was thinking about this within the context of, you know, what's going on right now. The Olympics just started the other night. And, and I know there's some, you know, controversy with the Olympics and all of that. But I still, I loved, I told you I love athletics and I love the Olympics. And, and my favorite Olympic athlete of all time has to be Michael Phelps. I mean, this guy is you know, perhaps the greatest, uh, well, he's certainly the most decorated and successful Olympic athlete in history. He won 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals, all in swimming, of course. I mean, the guy must be part fish. I, I think if he pulls his ears back, he's got gills there. And he had this tremendous work ethic, and he had this incredible competitive drive that so few people have, this drive to succeed and excel and to win, and all of those things combined to help make him almost unbeatable in the water. But that's not all that Michael Phelps had going for him. You see, experts say that part of what made Phelps so successful as a swimmer was his physiology. It was the way he was designed. You see, for one thing, he's really tall, which helps when you're stretching, you know, when this uh, a hundredth of a second makes the difference between first and fourth place. If you're able to stretch out, he's six foot four, and, and that helps him to, to reach really far. But he also has the wingspan of someone much taller. His arms stretch out to six feet seven, which is about the arm span that you'd expect for a seven foot tall person. His torso is also much longer than most people his height. So he has a, an extremely long torso, but uh, at the same time, shorter legs. So they're more squat and powerful. And then he has size 14 feet. Basically, he has flippers, right? And then get this, his ankles can hyperextend further than a trained ballet dancer, giving them the ability to powerfully thrust his feet through the water. When evaluated on this basis, specialists have come to the following conclusion. Michael Phelps was made to swim. 
So Michael Phelps was made to swim, and he combined that with that work ethic that we just described and that will to win that was cultivated in him, and it translated to a bunch of medals on the podium. Well, don't you know that you are completing Christ, and part of what that means is you are completely equipped with everything you need. You have it all. It's all there. You're complete in him. It's a beautiful thought. You don't need to wait. You don't need more. You're not a, a spiritual polywog. Like when I get my, you know, get my, my legs, then I'll, I'll really take off. No, no, no. You already have what you need. It's time to step out in faith, trusting that the Lord is with you, that the Lord is for you, that the Lord has gone before you, that he has a plan and a purpose, and that he didn't make a mistake when he made you, that he knit you together in your mother's womb, and he picked out your parents, and he picked out the place where you would live, and he picked out, picked out the timing of when you live. It's, by, it's not by mistake that you live here, that you're in this neighborhood, that you live next to those people, that you work with these individuals, it's all part of God's perfect plan to situate you in the place where you can flourish and you can give him glory by doing what he created you to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We're going we're gonna to move into a time of communion now. And, and as I mentioned earlier, communion is such a powerful, powerful thing that we do around here. I love our communion Sundays. And we talked in the study about what it means to receive the Lord. And I would be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity for all of you this evening to come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Today could be your day one. This is the day that God has preordained for you to step into his family, for you to become a son or a daughter of the king, for you to have your past forgiven, the slate wiped clean, to have yourself robed in the righteousness of Christ, to get your name written in the Lamb's book of life, to have the peace of knowing that when you close your eyes to this life, you will open your eyes in the presence of Jesus. You say, how does that happen? What does it take? And all it takes is an admission on your part that Jesus is Lord. For if you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. So I want to give you that opportunity. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this gathering. And this is so special, so significant, what's happening right now, Lord, as you move up and down every aisle. If you don't know for sure in your heart that you belong to Jesus and you'd like to, if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, Jesus wants to give you that confidence tonight. John wrote, these things I write to you that you might know that you have eternal life. And if there is doubt in your heart, then we need to settle that tonight. Jesus left heaven. He came to this earth. He lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died a gruesome death on the cross in your place for your sins. And then he rose victorious over Satan's sin, hell, and death after three days so that if you'll put your faith in him, you will be forgiven and set free. And he'll come into your heart and make his home 
home there. And he'll transform you from the inside out so that you can begin to live with purpose and passion and joy. If that's the desire of your heart, would you just simply raise your hand? I want to pray with you tonight. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for all the hands that are going up in this sanctuary this evening. And you can all just pray this prayer with me. And we'll pray it out loud as a way of affirming in our own hearts what God has done and cementing it there. Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sin and taking my place on the cross and rising from the dead so that I have the hope of resurrection life. I believe in you with my heart that you conquered the grave and that you love me. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.